Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. And of course, support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. On this episode, I speak to Alex Vitale, the author of The End of Policing, as well as New York congressional candidates Isaiah James and Pete Harrison. Isaiah James is a Democratic congressional candidate for New York's 9th district. He's a community organizer, activist, army veteran, and is 100% people-powered. Peter Harrison is running in New York's 12th district. He's a housing activist, Democratic Socialist, CUNY adjunct. And their elections are June 23rd, so make sure you vote. This week's Patreon is really good and includes an interview with Nando Villa, as well as an interview with Max Blumenthal about John Bolton and what it's like to be retweeted by Donald Trump. I'm very excited to have with us a repeat offender. Ooh, no pun intended. Uh, repeat guest, Alex Vitali, who is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. He's also the author of The End of Policing. And he's the coordinator of the... Policing and Social Justice Project. Policing and Brooklyn Social College. Justice Project at Brooklyn College. So thank you so much for joining us. You bet, Katie. When I interviewed you a couple of years ago for the first time, it's not like I thought it was a work of science fiction, but I did think it was more <laughs> future oriented, you know, than I do now. Have things shifted as much as they seem that they have? Well, that's a good question, right? Because, yeah, it's not it's not so obvious what the immediate results of all this are going to be. While we've had a couple of very concrete victories, you know, $100 million here, the, the end of school policing there, you know, we're up against some very powerful forces who, who continue to think that the problems of policing can be picked, fixed with some implicit bias training and, and firing a few police officers. And really, the you know, the, the policing, the, our over-reliance on policing is directly connected to our unwillingness to do anything about problems of mass homelessness, mass untreated mental illness, you know, mass economic precarity. So that means the politicians who don't want to deal with those things, all they can offer us is a bunch of superficial procedural reforms and kind of, you know, throw a few officers under the bus. And if you watch like CNN and MSNBC, what you see is them just trotting out one person after another, talking about body cameras and implicit bias training. And, you know, once every 24 hours, a voice gets in there and says something, well, maybe they shouldn't be doing every job under the sun, but but it's really few and far between. Right. When you started writing this book, The End of Policing, did you discover anything? Like, did you go into it basically with all the ideas and takes and perspectives um, that you had coming out of it? Or did anything surprise you? Like, did anything change your mind? Well, I don't know if I changed my mind, but I learned, I definitely learned some stuff, especially the history. You know, I had a, a general sense of, the, of, the, of some broad outlines, thanks to uh, Christian Williams's book, Our Enemies in Blue. And also um, there was a, 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 an activist intervention in the uh, early 1970s that, that produced this document called uh, The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Mm-hmm that really gave a, a kind of opening salvo of this kind of analysis that, that policing is not gonna be reformed, it's, it's structurally oppressive, et cetera. 
But, you know, I went, I went, for instance, I went down to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, which some people had sort of mentioned was interesting in this regard and, and learned a lot firsthand about the ways in which, you know, slavery in the big cities looked very different than slavery in the countryside. You know, so that a lot of people are somewhat familiar with this idea of plantations and overseers and maybe even uh, slave patrols, patrollers who would patrol these rural highways and byways looking for slaves who didn't have permission to be out on the, uh, on the roads. But in the cities, it was very different because actually slaves worked outside the home of their owners for wages that were then returned to the owners. And this meant that in the big cities like Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans, which were really big cities back then, we're talking even in the late 1700s and early 1800s, um, there were often more black slaves than there were whites. And so this created a real public order problem of potential slave revolts, slaves learning how to read, you know, underground societies. So they basically create modern forms of policing to lawfully, professionally manage this slave population. And so that was like a kind of powerful thing to sort of go and visit some of these historic homes and see the slave quarters and then read about the badges that they had to wear when traveling from where they lived, to where they worked, et cetera. And you can you share with listeners in case they don't know about the British origins of the police mm. and why they're called Bobbies uh, in England? And then yeah. We'll, yeah. So there, there's a kind of standard, the standard academic narrative about the origins of policing is that it begins in 1829 with the formation of the London Metropolitan Police. They, they're held up as the first sort of civilian, professional, uniform, 24-hour, uh, non-military, you know, response to crime and disorder. And the history just sort of says, well, you know, Sir Robert Peel, who created them, uh, Robert, Bob, the Bobbies, right, was some genius who just drew this out of thin air. But but what's left out of that that typical kind of liberal academic narrative is that he got this idea when he was in charge of the English occupation of Ireland. You know, he was a colonial manager. And during that period that he was doing it, uh, England's army was tied up with Napoleon and he was low on forces of repression. And so he invents the Irish Peace Preservation Force and to make it more nimble, more affordable and more legitimate, he tries to embed them in local communities and give this give them this kind of law enforcement patina. And this allows them to act preemptively in when uprisings of different kinds are brewing, so-called agricultural outrages, which were really, you know, peasant revolts against landlords. Uh, but Peel takes this idea and brings it to the urban setting of London during this period where there's this massive influx of folks coming from the countryside because of the enclosures, they're losing their agricultural jobs, and they're hoping to find work in the city in this newly industrializing economy. 
And uh, Mark uh, Neil Klaus argues uh, he's a, a British social theorist about policing. He argues that basically policing is created to manufacture a working class to take this disorderly, rebellious, rural population that's angry about economic change and mold them into a reliable working class that will not make too much trouble, that won't have bread riots, that won't commit crime, and that won't organize strikes and be disruptive to the economy. So like a white working class, would you say? Yeah, it's white, although, you know, there are Irish immigrants in this period and their their racial status is more complicated. But there this is this is really before there's any meaningful presence of folks from the West Indies or, or parts of Africa. So you're talking about an overwhelmingly white working class population. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's not rich. You know, in the American context, like Charleston like the Texas Rangers who were our own colonial police, you know, there's a clear racial capitalism at work, but see the British were able to export their racial exploitation. It takes place in India, in the West Indies, in Africa, and the, the, ex, the economic exploitation at home is not racialized in that way. It's given a very profound class character. Right. So the idea is that these people are, inferior because of class breeding, right? So the upper class deserves their position because they have proper breeding and the lower class, they don't know any better. They can't manage their own affairs. So it's very paternalistic kind of class-based society. Right. Um, so what is happening now? And were you surprised? I, I mean, because there's all this, like you said, there's a lot of discussion about um, abolish the police, defund the police, disband the police. And and I, I heard you on CNN, you said that these things are much more complicated than just a uh, a tweet or a slogan. But it does seem like there's power in rhetoric and it can be, we have to be vigilant, right? Because we can't let people just hide behind slogans without meaningful policy. But were you surprised by how much this word abolish the police or defund the police um, has been kind of not normalized, but how de it's not, it's no longer as radical a term as it was just a few years ago, I think. Did you expect that or? So, I mean, I didn't expect it to the extent that it has been, you know, this universal call, but it was it was not completely a surprise because for the last three years, I've been crisscrossing the country every other week. I'm in like 25 cities a week. And so I've been doing, you know, support for this organizing that's happening all over the place. I mean, I was in three cities in Indiana earlier this year. I, I've been all over Texas. Uh, you know, I, these, it's not just LA, New York, San Francisco, right? right? There's this nat, there's this national, yeah, there's this national thing percolating and people were doing this work on the ground in places like Nashville, Tennessee and Durham and Dallas and, you know, not your normal hotbeds of liberal activism, you know, right. much less radical activism. And so what I, what I saw over that three years was just the extent to which the narrative had really shifted 
to, a, a, let's say, maybe a more abolitionist orientation or a fully abolitionist orientation. So, for instance, in, in St. Louis and Ferguson, and I've spent a fair amount of time down there because uh, they keep asking me back. Um, initially, the response in Ferguson was, you know, jail killer cops. That's, that's what we want. That's justice. That's accountability. But over time, you begin to see among the activists the understanding that that's not actually going to get them where they want to be. It's not really going to change policing, and it's certainly not going to change the conditions in their communities. So uh, folks like Derricka Purnell, who was part of that movement and is now one of the really important thought leaders in what's going on today, she, she eventually writes a piece for The Guardian about what it, that jailing killer cops is a dead-end strategy. And so then people start deepening their analysis and eventually you get the close the workhouse campaign, which is about closing a jail and redirecting those resources into community identified needs. And they're out working in the neighborhoods, building support for this idea, pressuring local city council members, getting op-eds in the newspaper, showing up at budget hearings. And that's what this new movement looks like. It's a really very practical local politics with, mm. with some, some very concrete demands and defund the police to them always means reinvest in these community identified needs. And that's the one I would say weakness of the defund the police hashtag is that it doesn't capture that reinvest part. It doesn't quite capture this idea that actually we have a better plan for creating safe communities. It's right. not tomorrow there are just no police, right? It's that we want to build up these alternative infrastructures because we think they'll do a better job of keeping people safe. Right. Yeah. How much of is how much of a kind of bipartisan or postpartisan consensus is there around this? Because I'm always surprised by how much, um, or maybe not surprised, but it, it does seem like even people who aren't particularly empathetic, progressive, caring people, but are fiscal conservatives and public safety people, slowly but surely, um, and you, I don't know about the data, this is purely anecdotal, but people seem to be getting more and more that if you care about pe keeping people safe, this kind of more... Um, draconian punitive justice is not actually effective. It costs a lot of money and it doesn't keep people safe. How, how, how um, much of a shift are we seeing in terms of people who aren't particularly progressive? Is that, is that shifting among people who identify as conservatives or tough on crime, or is that still kind of uh, you know, You know, it's interesting because most of the attention has been had been on prisons so so like when the abolitionist movement kind of really takes on some legs about 20 something years ago with the formation of critical resistance and the emergence of of works by people like ruth wilson gilmore and stuff that the focus is almost entirely on prisons and mass incarceration. So we get the new Jim Crow, right, from Michelle Alexander, that doesn't say anything about police. 
And so that movement has been making some real progress. But the, but the focus has always been on reducing the number of people in prison. Right. And so part, actually one of the major motivations for me to write the book was to say, hey, police, right? A, nobody ends up in prison without going through the police first. And B, police commit a tremendous amount of harm even when they don't people to send, send people to prison right? The, the constant harassment, right. the demeaning behavior, and they actually kill people. Right. So the bipartisanship has emerged a little bit around incarceration. Mm -hmm. There's right. more openness, especially at the federal level to say, yes, there are too many people in prison and we need alternatives. Now, the problem is, is that sometimes they want to take replace prisons with electronic monitoring and other forms of intensive surveillance, which is also very problematic. But there, that bipartisan consensus is thin. The reforms have been very thin, right on crime kind of stuff, but it's there, but not on policing. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm more right. on incarceration than non-policing. Right. That makes sense. Yes. If you just look at, at the bills that are being discussed in Washington, right, that there, it's just a return to these superficial procedural reforms and a couple of kind of harm reduction measures and not a word about reducing the scope of policing, which has to be, you know, the center of the agenda and of course is the center of the defund movement. Right. So there's no, there's no, there's no real, there's so little mainstream political support in Washington for these ideas right now. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, right. So that's an important distinction. I was, you're right. I was just lumping all of it in together because there's like, yeah, yeah, the the carceral state incarceration, and then there's actual policing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we may see this all as the carceral state, but in terms right. of actual public policy, it's not understood that way. Exactly. Right. And of course, people who are not on the left don't use run around using the word carceral state, obviously, or outside no. of academia. Yeah. Um, so. What is happening now? What what does it mean? Are, is there a, let's I guess let's start with the basics. What exactly demilitarizing, defunding and disbanding the police and then ab ab abolish the police? What all of these okay. mean? I know, like going from the most. Uh, OK, let's let, we'll have a little glossary here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and, and in fact, that reminds me, uh, policing a field guide is a great resource on this. I got my little stack of books here oh, right. uh, by Tyler Wall and David Perea, which is basically a glossary of, of terms of cop speak and whatnot. So, oh, okay. Oh. Uh, okay. So defund the police is in its simplest terms. It's about taking money from policing and shifting it to communities. And ideally it involves the dismantling of specific policing tasks that would then be accomplished by community-based interventions. Dismantling the police means something a little bit different, and there's a lot less clarity about that. We had one example of this in Camden, New Jersey, but that was really primarily about breaking the union so that they could bring in a new force at lower pay with no mm -hmm. work rules, no union, you know, and then that led to actually more intensive policing with a lot of kind of procedural niceties for the community. 
What's being talked about in Minneapolis is much more like what the defund folks are asking for, which is that they are saying, the latest I've heard is this discussion of, we're gonna do community consultations to identify people's specific public safety needs. And then we're gonna work with the community to come up with as many non-police-based strategies for addressing those as we can. And at the end of that process, will be able to significantly shrink the footprint of policing and shift those resources into community need, community infrastructures, alternative. So in my mind, that's exactly what we should be doing. It's, it's incredibly exciting. Now it's gonna take work to hold their feet to the fire and make them really do it. It's gonna take work to identify oh, their best practices. They're tr trotters, sorry, I had to, yes. I love, I love Paige, well, by the way, the I'm very upset. Okay, I just wanted to interject. We'll it's get not back the police, it's the city council members. City council members, okay. City council members, that's who's, who has right. to be held accountable here, okay. yeah. I just wanted to use that term because I wanted to. We'll, we'll put a pin in it. I love pigs, so I'm very just. I'm very uncomfortable with the porcophobic uh, terminology. But anyway, gotcha. Yeah, which which doesn't even apply because okay. you weren't even talking about them. That was just putting yes. again, putting a, a a pin on the pigtail, the, the uh, on the, <laughs> the pig. Yeah, yeah. So dismantle implies changing the personnel usually. Okay. So it can look like defund in Minneapolis, but in other cases, it's looked like something very different. Okay. So we got to be careful about right. dismantle. That's we don't have clarity on okay. what that means. So we got to hear a lot of details to know which model they're talking about. Got it. And really, I would say what they're talking about in, in Minneapolis now is not actually dismantling. Okay. It's defunding on a, on a on a radical scale. Yeah. And then I think the last one you mentioned was abolish the police. So then abolition is takes all that, but it has a deeper analysis, or maybe we could think of it more as a long range vision, which is that first of all, on the analysis side, it's the understanding that policing and prisons are inherently unjust, mm -hmm. that they are tools for reproducing inequality, mostly along lines of class and race, but not, you know, in, and can include sexuality and gender and other, other factors as well. But mental but, health. Uh, yes. Yes. Which, category, but, but, but yeah. mental, but mental health, like those mental health effects are experienced primarily in our poorest communities because right. rich people with mental health problems don't have those kinds of police contacts. Typically, typically yeah. there are obviously exceptions. So, and, and about the, the estimates are 50% of people killed by police have some form of disability, a mental health challenge, deafness, hard of hearing, depending on which term you prefer, et cetera. So uh, yeah, that, that is a staggering, staggering figure. And totally okay. underexplored. Like you never hear about the hard, of, uh, the hard of hearing Very and deaf people. You hear about mental illness, but that I remember reading an article about someone who, yeah. And I realized yes. like no one talks about this. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so there's that analysis that, that policing and prisons are rooted in class and race oppression, that they're tools for managing regimes of exploitation. And then there's about a vision, right? We, we want to live in a world that doesn't need to rely on people with guns and cages for human beings to produce social stability, 
So most abolitionists, I think, in the current moment, they are, they are not entirely clear on exactly what that world looks like or even exactly how we would get there. It's aspirational. It's a vision. And I think that if we take the trouble to explain it to people, it's a vision that, that most people would at least agree with philosophically, which is, yeah, I don't want to have to live in a world with armed police managing our affairs. But how do we get there, et cetera, becomes more complicated. And that gets us into the realm of much bigger political questions about the, you know, the direction of, of the country, our political economic systems. And abolitionists, I think part of what's important about that is they're saying there's no technocratic fix to policing mm. and prisons. It's embedded in our fundamental uh, political and economic institutional structures. And so that when people tell us we're going to fix the problem with some implicit bias training in a police community encounter session, it's just laughable, right? Because that completely elides any discussion about the fundamental injustices that those criminal justice institutions are upholding. It's funny. I remember when I interviewed you um, last time, I had you on and um, Craig uh, to talk about uh, the Bronx 120. And I asked you about abolition and you gave this really great, uh, example. Uh, you, you said, well, you know, think of abolition as it already exists. Abolition already exists, uh, yeah. in schools on the Upper East Side. And you didn't know that I went to Dalton, which I did. <laughs> Communist summer camp, private high school. And you were like, you know, imagine if you're in, uh, on the Upper East Side and you get caught with drugs and they say, Katie, uh, go talk to the school psychologist, right? But we won't tell your parents, maybe, right? And then if I keep getting caught with drugs again, it's Katie, we caught you again. Now we're going to talk to the school psychologist and call on your parents. And if I got caught again, you know, it keeps going up like through different levels, but the police are not involved, like ever, right? Like maybe no. at the end of the day, ultimately I get sent to a some private rehab center. I don't know what it is. Uh, but yeah. that I remember I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. It's so it, it, I mean, we can live in a more abolitionist, abolition adjacent society, right? Like right now we could be living in that. It seems Absolutely. like it's more of a spectrum than it sounds, I guess. Absolutely. You know, when you when you go to, to leafy suburbs up in Westchester, there aren't police on every corner harassing people, you know, because they have stability in their lives because they have economic security and access to resources. And so no one imagines that we need police to manage their affairs, right? Because remember, part of this is a racist project that says that certain suspect classes are incapable of managing their own affairs without the 24 hour a day threat of coercive violence. Right. And, and that's kind of the root of so much of this deeply conservative, thin blue line kind of politics that comes out of the police unions and their supporters. It's like, oh, my God, if we let up for one second, they will rape and shoot everyone. Right. And, and, and that's racist, right? Because they don't think that for their own communities. Right. I don't know how to say this because it's very sensitive and I don't want to sound at all like I'm downplaying racism, but it's much more of a poverty issue than it's often presented as. It's also a race mm -hmm. issue too, but the discourse around it 
and obviously all lives i'm not at all i think you probably everyone watching me and listening to me and you as well <laughs> knows that knows that the, the 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 you know the slogan of all lives matters is not uh one that i uh find compelling at all and in fact what that usually means is black lives don't matter but how much of an issue i mean it's all interconnected obviously but but how do we tackle this from a a perspective that kind of I don't know. That's uh, actually intersectional, or that 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 presents this as the kind of intersectional issue that it is. Right. So, even if we think that we need to understand this through a class lens or through a political economic lens, right? There is no capitalism. There's there's no history of capitalism that does not have a race right. character to it front and center, right? So sometimes it's less obvious because that racial exploitation has been exported. So we don't see it in a particular domestic context, but it's that, that like in Liverpool, you had white working class exploitation, but Liverpool was also the center of the British slave trade. So the wealth and power of Liverpool was a product of that racial exploitation. It was just not in your face in the same way. So African-Americans always have this extra burden. We've got a lot of research that shows that, you know, middle-class African-American neighborhoods are criminalized like poor mm -hmm. white neighborhoods. Right. Are, right. You know, right. um, and that if we're going to make progress on this, I think what's happening now is actually very encouraging because what you have is, although there need to be some tweaks, obviously, what, what you have is a racial justice movement with multiracial buy-in, right? Because if you look at, at the streets, right, this is not just African-Americans out on the streets. There's a broader understanding now that, that American racism interferes with the ability to have any kind of progressive politics. Mm -hmm. So that the only way we're going to get out of this is to build these cross-race alliances. The trick is we have to both be certain to prioritize the, the leadership and analysis that comes out of the African-American community while making sure not to lose track of that deeper analysis of class inequality in the United States. And we can, we can kind of look a little bit at, at the Black Panthers in some interesting ways because I think there are a lot of misconceptions today about the Black Panthers that they were somehow just analogous to Malcolm X or something, that they, they were invested in a kind of black nationalism. And that really was not true. They were actually opposed to that, that they had an anti-imperialist analysis and they had a deep class analysis and they were willing to work in coalition with primarily white organizations who shared their anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-racist analysis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the situation. We need both non-Black people to become more invested in participating in an anti-racist movement. And we need the whole thing 
to develop a stronger anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist analysis. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that the Black Lives Matter movement has not as clearly articulated that anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist analysis, but it is there in things right. like solidarity with Palestine. Yeah. So that that does include that kind of anti-imperialist analysis, but it's that is sort of muted, especially yeah. in the current moment. So what does this look like in terms of actual police officers? What's the plan moving forward? What happens to the police? Uh, who fulfills what what functions? You talked about attrition. For the invest divest movement, you know, the defund thing is kind of that language is somewhat new. That wasn't the language that I ever used. But for this new movement, people are clear about what they're doing. There's, but there is some some conversation about the language. But I think there is a lot of clarity in the movement about what we're talking about. So, in that movement, what people are talking about, for the most part, is the idea that we need to identify the specific public safety challenges that people are experiencing in their communities. Is it a domestic violence problem? Is it an opioid overdose problem? Is it a youth violence problem? And then develop targeted specific interventions to address those public safety problems without relying on armed police. So it's gonna look like a lot of different things. It might look like cure violence, systems that that hire people from the community to work with younger kids to break the cycle of violence to get them involved in trauma counseling and pro-social activities and vocational training and and to try to work out beefs and establish truces between you know warring crews from different housing projects or whatever it looks like hiring more mental health clinicians and creating community-based mental health strategies so that the nyp did NYPD doesn't have to go on 200,000 EDP calls every year. And you EDP is, is emotional. Yeah, that's their term. That's their term, right? So someone having a mental health crisis right. or some kind. It means getting rid of narcotics units and putting in harm reduction strategies, legalization or decriminalization schemes. You know, it means getting rid of the vice unit and decriminalizing sex work. It means getting rid of homeless outreach police units and actually putting people in supportive housing. So that it's, it's not like one thing. Now, I do think there are some possibilities here for some, some additional creative thinking. So if you think about the recent deaths in Atlanta and Minneapolis, you know, there was no real reason for armed police to be involved in either of those incidents. Right, the, an allegation of a of a counterfeit twenty dollar bill and someone asleep in their car, you know, blocking a, a drive in, a drive through window of a fast food restaurant. So, uh, Minneapolis has this thing that on the weekends downtown, where there are lots of bars and restaurants, it's it's really fun if you haven't been there. Uh, they have. A they have these teams of nonprofit outreach workers who can be dispatched to try to help manage people getting in a fight after the bars close or making too much noise or throwing bottles or whatever. And they try to resolve as much of this as they can without any involvement of police. Mm -hmm. In the UK, they have these neighborhood uh, wardens 
who work with local businesses, who try to keep an eye on problems of trash and, and kids really causing a nuisance in front of a business, let's say, no arrest powers, no use of force powers. They just go and talk to people. Now, these systems are not perfect. They have this somewhat, some of them have a somewhat punitive character to them, like the UK example, but we could have something that is community-oriented, community-based. They're problem solvers. They have mediation training. They have violence de-escalation training. They live in the community so that they know people, and they're like, Jimmy, why are you doing that? I'm going to tell your grandmother, go right. home, cut that out, right? Nobody gets shot. Nobody gets tasered. Nobody gets arrested. But problems get resolved to some extent. So somebody knocks on the car window and says, wake up, man. Look, you're too drunk to drive. Give me your keys. I'm going to pull the car out of the way. and Let's get you a cab. Because right. when the officers asked him to get out of the car, he complied. Mm -hmm. It was when they tried to arrest him that he said, well, fuck that. I don't want to get arrested. And then he fought with them. Right. And he's right. drunk. He's, right. And then right. yeah. they're, and because they're armed police, they're like, well, of course, we got to kill you now. Right. So if there'd been no armed police there in the first place, these guys would still be alive. And of course, there's also why did the store owner call the police? Yeah, I, I tried to I tried to spend a bad ten dollar bill one time. I didn't realize that it was bad. And the guy right. was just like, oh, this is no good. Do you, do you have a credit card? Right. Right. Nobody called the police. And similarly, that fast food guy could have had one of his employees just go knock on the window and be like, yo, wake up, dude. Could you pull your car over here out of the way? So there's that, too, that we've got to address. Quit, quit weaponizing the police. Right. Now, what happens to the individual police officers? Where do they go? Because uh, when I had Christian Parenti on, he was yeah. concerned about uh, Blackwater type of phenomenon and also just a bunch of like disaffected armed dudes. Yeah, if you look at these movements across the country, the, the defund or the invest, divest or reinvestment movements, mostly the targets, the dollar amounts that they're talking about uh, don't involve layoffs. This, this could be achieved through attrition, through cuts to overtime, through cuts to, you know, buying tanks and, and tear gas and stuff like that. So um, this is not about laying off large numbers of police. It's just about not hire them, hiring them. And I'll, I'll just tell a little story if I can about a talk I gave in Houston a little while back. And some, some police officers came, black and brown police officers came uh, and we talked for a while afterwards and they were like, when we were kids, we lived in neighborhoods that the police, where the police were real jerks. They were, they were a source of danger for us. They didn't respect us. And we thought, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do with ourselves. And we thought, well, this is a career where maybe we could get in there and kind of change the culture of policing and, and, and make the police do something positive for kids in the community. And they're like, but, and it did not work. It failed. We could not change the culture of policing. They were trying to ask me, what should we have done differently? And I'm like, there's no changing the culture of policing. It's, it's built into the institutional mission. But let me, I said, let me, ask, let me ask you guys a question. When you were thinking of joining the police department, if there had been a choice between 
a job as a cop or a different job with the same pay and benefits, working in a neighborhood community center, coaching football and mentoring kids, which job would you would have chosen? Which job would you have chosen? And of course, they laugh and they're like, oh, man, are you kidding? We would much rather have been coaching kids and working with them. But there were no such jobs. And I'm like, right. exactly. Why yeah. are there never those jobs? And it was that point because they were still trying to figure out what the heck I was right. talking about. And it was that point that they finally got it. They were like, right. The police department is always hiring and there are never those jobs. Yeah. 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 It's a really good point. Also, I think like people need to remember that so often people are like, well, it sounds like a good idea on paper, but it'll never work. And like, Nothing works until it's done. You know, like people would say that people say that about, I'm sure about social security. They said that about, you know, Medicare. They said that like same sex marriage, they were sure that would never pass. Um, but so, we, we have evidence for most of this stuff. Right. I mean, it does work. We actually know it works. I mean, no, one thing to keep in mind here, right. Is that there is no perfect world. Yeah, this is right. this is another like like effort to undermine the mo movement of oh, these people are all utopian. Naive right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And my my thing is like, no, anyone who says we can fix policing with implicit bias is being right. naive and utopian. Right. I actually right. understand how right. this institution works. These are violence workers carrying out a fundamentally unjust mission. Right. right? That is the realistic, hard headed assessment of the situation. And the people doing this work are trying to produce safety. That's why they get out of bed every morning. That is what their motivation is. And there is evidence to support these interventions. The, you know, my book has hundreds of endnotes about with reports and studies and examples. And, you know, we can get rid of the drug war. We can get rid of the criminalization of sex work. We could create an actual mental health system. We right. have examples in the U.S. We have examples internationally. This is an evidence-based movement. Yeah. I think that it's interesting. It's like, so you have something like Medicare for all that people are like, that could never happen. But this is a very, like, seductive, that could never happen argument, I think, because people think of the police as pe keeping people safe. That's the idea that's been communicated, right? So they think there's going to be, a, even if people, I think I think there's some people out there who are like, well, it sounds like a good idea, but how are we going to get there? It's going to be mayhem and bedlam. Not at all, because the, the way this, you know, look at Minneapolis initially, right? There was a struggle underway in Minneapolis before George Floyd was killed. They were calling for a $45 million cut to the police budget and then investments in community-identified needs to address things like youth violence and untreated mental illness, right? And so this is not about there's some magic switch and poof, there are no police. Right. This, this is about we build this up, we bring this down, we see what works, this takes place over time, right? No, no city council in America is going to zero out the police budget this year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's... That is not in the cards. Right. This Don't is about we chip away. We show the logic of what we're doing. We show that it works. Right. And we build on that. Yeah. And what do you think of um, should Joe Biden's I, I, I was thinking maybe Joe Biden's slogan could be 
Biden shooting you in the leg, not the heart. Uh, did you hear that? You know, did you hear his his idea about having a uh, why don't they teach cops to shoot people in the legs? Which literally yeah, yeah. is what I asked my parents as a little kid. I remember thinking that. So that was that was Joe off the cuff. Yeah, which, which was is, pretty terrible. Yeah. Then there's Joe after his advisors have spoken to him, which was we're going to give the police three hundred million more yeah, dollars. Yeah. That's no excuse. So that they can do policing better. Right. right. And yeah. that that's worse. That's yeah, exactly. worse. We're all used to Uncle Joe, like the gas. Right. But this is actually this is policy. this policy, is what right. they're actually going to do. What do you think, by the way, of 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 the difference between the Dems and the Republicans on this issue? Uh, and that's a huge question. One. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. I'm, wa right? I'm waiting to see one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess the so, discourse is different. Right. I mean, what's the. Right. Well, I, you know, one has kente cloth and the other doesn't. Uh, I know. I think we should so, play a game called Name That Party, where you go to the mayor or governor and figure <laughs> out which party they are. Well, at the local level, it's worse in, in a sense that there, there's really no difference in many cases. Right. There's a bipartisan consensus of turning every problem over to the police to manage. So at the federal level, I mean, there are some interesting developments. I've been working with Ayanna Presley's office and have been reviewing bill language with them right. for, for the last couple of weeks. Um, and the, the bill that's out now, the policing bill, it came from the sort of center of the party and it's pretty terrible. It, it has a few kind of harm reduction things in it, like around chokeholds and Right. And um, but a couple of other things. Oh, yeah. Like, well, knock, if knock, we, knock, uh, right. No knock warrants is yeah. good. I mean, that's good. That could save some lives, including police right. lives, frankly. Right, yeah. um, but it's not going to get to the root of the problem. So there 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 is there is a, some deve stuff developing that would look more like what the defund movement is calling for yeah. from a federal perspective. This is getting rid of existing federal subsidies. I mean, uh, the Trump administration just recently announced another $400 million for the cops office to, to give local places more money to hire police. Yeah. Uh, the cops office is running Operation Relentless Pursuit, which wants to flood seven cities with federal agents and money for more local police. Uh, I'm part of a national organizing effort in those cities uh, to to say to those mostly Democratic mayors, why are you advancing Trump's core political process here by embracing his, we're going to get the gangbangers and the drug cartels, right? You're, you're, you're assisting the Republican playbook by going along with this. Right. So this bill would get rid of all that and it would incentivize cities to cut their police budgets by offering them money for these community-based interventions if they hit certain uh, funding cut thresholds. Right. So it's the reversing of the 94 crime bill. Got it. 49 crime bill. Just kidding. I remember talking about this with you briefly, and you were saying how, you know, relatively insignificant it is to punish individual police officers in terms of where our priorities should be, like how our priorities should be on actually, you know, abolition, defunding, dismantling, one of those, right? But does it not, like recognizing that that's not a sufficient goal, does it not prevent some violence and maybe some murder in the very immediate sense when you have a culture 
that not even culture, when you have a precedent of police officers being punished for murder or for abuse or violence. Yeah. So again, I, I think I mentioned Derek or Purnell wrote a great column for the guardian about this. Yeah. So I, so people should, should Google her and, and jail killer cops and, and take a look at that to go more deeply into it. And I discuss it in my book as well in chapter one, but so I'm not against firing officers, you know, let's fire as many as we can, frankly. But I do have concerns about this idea that, that A, this is going to fix policing. Right. And B, that we want to rely on the carceral system to right. fix our problems. Yeah. That system is not designed to solve our problems, and that's why it never does. And we're just re re-legitimating that system right. and our reliance on punitiveness and revenge as a strategy for changing behavior and achieving justice. Right. So uh, Miriam Kava also has written, written about what a dead end strategy this is ultimately. Right. So I, I'm perfectly fine with firing officers. I mean, I think we should set a very low threshold for firing officers. Um, you know, but I don't, but even that it's not, we don't have evidence. We don't have a lot of reason to think that that's going to make policing better. Yeah. You know, everyone was so excited when that cop was, was jailed for murder in Chicago for killing Laquan McDonald. Right. right. Everyone. Oh my goodness. This is the best thing ever. But you know, I was in Chicago earlier this year. Nobody is dancing in the streets on the South side of Chicago about how great the police are now. Yeah. Right. Nothing has changed. Yeah. Thank you so much. We have, feel free to stay. Um, I'm sure you are so busy and I'm so grateful that you gave us this time. We are about to chat with two candidates for office and um, you feel free to join for you. Feel free to take some questions. It's totally up to you. Just very excited. Well, that let me, I'll stick around yeah. for a little bit. I'm, I'm right, great. okay. Awesome. The, the scotch is kicking in. So great. it's nice and mellow over great. here. <laughs> this is great. I love this. This is so cool. Okay. I should have given you guys a warning, but you guys, how exciting is this? And by the way, I just want people to know um, if you're just joining me, this is a very typical lineup. I, Usually it's, I, I have more women in the mix. So I just don't want people to think that I'm, I'm not centering uh, my women, my sisters uh, and a guest, but I'm very excited to have uh, this combo of guests. I don't know if you all know each other, but. Uh, Professor um, Vitale, you taught when I was at Brooklyn college. I just there you go. Uh, great. Yeah. yeah love, love your work. Uh, yeah. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So yeah, we thank have. You, thank I, didn't, you. I didn't get a chance to take one of your classes when I went there for undergrad, but I know of you. Well, there you okay, go. Okay, very now, good. Now you get, you get like a tutorial. We get a, you get a, a very. In I know. I see his books behind him. So I literally, before this started, I ran to grab some of my policing books off the shelf. Oh, nice. So I wasn't, you know, <laughs> left off. <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. I have, my, I have mine right here. Wow. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. I got it. I've got a YouTube channel where I've been interviewing authors ever since uh, COVID-19. And so a bunch of these are the books that I've done interviews with. So you can find those on YouTube. Awesome. So I like this combination because we have the uh, academic intellectual corner. And then we have not that you guys aren't academic and intellectual also, but the, the, the roads you're pursuing, you guys are doing the office, running for office. And Alex is doing the um, 
uh, writing for uh, students, teaching for students, writing for people, and I'm doing the live streaming for everyone. Um, Isaiah and Peter, welcome. And and please tell us why, um, uh, we'll start with you, Isaiah, and then you, Peter, uh, why you guys are running for uh, office. Uh, what inspired okay. you? Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Katie, for having me on. Uh, I know Peter personally, so me and Pete talk often. You know, we're actual friends. We know each other. Um, so for those who don't know me, you know, my name is Isaiah James. I'm, I'll get to the real down and dirty. I'm running for office because, you know, the problems that we face obviously cannot wait to be addressed anymore. We've, we've had the same old corporate spiel from corporate Democrats and from money-hungry Republicans for the last 70, 80 years. And whatever we have done to lead us to this point is not working. And the moment demands so much more. This is more than just platitudes. This is more than just pat on the back and, and given, you know, you know, fancy colloquialisms. This is the time for action. And when over a year ago, when I met with my member of Congress around some real salient issues around criminal justice reform and housing and education, she was almost insulted that I would bring these things up. And that night I made it my mission. I was like, you know what? If I want to see the change, I have to be the change. I came home that night and I told my wife about it. I was racking my brain and literally at two in the morning, I Googled how to run for Congress. Really? I swear to you. Was no your wife like, I wish we had had a power outage that night. And this is somebody <laughs> with a political science background for undergrad and a public policy background for graduate school. And I still had no idea. Wow. I Googled how to run for Congress, watched a few YouTube videos, and a year later, there. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, Pete, that's a hard act to follow. Oh, always. I try to go before Isaiah. Yeah, sorry, I set you up. Yeah, yeah. you know, I was, just, I was just thinking, Isaiah, the last time we actually like hung out in person was outside uh, Chuck Schumer's house. We were protesting yeah, the was, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow. back, back in the, uh, the the good days yeah. when I was just protesting potential war with, with Iran. Oh, yeah, I remember um, that, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, Katie, thank you so much for having me on. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Peter Harrison, and I am a housing activist, democratic socialist, and a professor at Baruch College, where Isaiah got his uh, master's degree. And I am running in New York 12, which is the east side of Manhattan, western Queens, and north Brooklyn. I have been a housing activist uh, on the ground in the city for over 10 years with the DSA, with Housing Justice for All. And we've done an immense amount of good more recently, just last year uh, up in Albany. but a lot of the work that I've done at the policy side, it has been at the federal level. And there's only so much that we can get done for housing justice at the local level. And I think when I started running in this race, people would say, oh, you know, Pete, you're a housing person. That's great. You should run for something local. Housing is not a national issue. Um, and I certainly think with everything with COVID happening, that's not, uh, I'm not hearing that anymore. Right. But, um, Certainly with everything that's been happening in the last couple of weeks as well, I, I try to use the housing as a lens to talk about economic inequality and racial injustice and climate disaster. And when we talk about uh, what we need to do right now, and, and Alex has obviously written an immense amount of work on this, um, from my perspective, you've really got to tackle the, the logic of the incentives of the capitalist system that the police are really just the tip of the spear on. And to me, that's always been about taking on the real estate industry. It's an immensely powerful, very underrated villain in our political system. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very proud to have worked on the Homes Guarantee, which is a national progressive plan to really like 
not just make housing a right in the abstract, as Isaiah said, sort of platitudes, but to actually make a plan that says, we're going to put people over property. Mm. And we live in a world that does the opposite of that right now. So that's really been the core of my race, um, you know, going back uh, to the beginning of the race, going against Representative Maloney. And it's, don't get me wrong, I really wish this, these circumstances were not happening, that people weren't struggling so much to pay rent. People weren't recognizing um, the limitations of what the federal government can do. But because we are in this moment, because people are out in the streets protesting, it is a time to make structural change. And we really have to do that at the federal level. And we have to do that through our homes. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up. Um, well, I had Samelis Lopez on, who's another yeah. person yeah, who really comes at it from a housing uh, perspective. And good friend of the show slash someone I've known since I was five years old, Ava Farkas, who's the uh, executive director of Met Council on Housing. Uh, uh, another person uh, who's really, you know, obviously looks at the world and works uh, in the world through the lens of housing. But it, you just, when you said that, you reminded me of um, uh, Eric Garner. One of the things I learned from reading my co-host uh, Matt Taibbi's book uh, before we co-hosted Useful Idiots, I read his book, I Can't Breathe, about Eric Garner. And I didn't realize until reading that how the police were harassing him in large part because they were trying to, quote, unquote, clean up the neighborhood for real estate, um, uh, the real estate industry. And so it, this is really, I think that COVID has really demonstrated all these things that we've been saying about how interconnected all of these issues are. Uh, I wanted to know Alex, and then I'm gonna go back to the to the um, candidates, but Alex, what you see as the, the connection between housing and uh, criminal justice, or what you think that people need to know about those issues that, that isn't really underlined, except for people like, you know, our other fine guests, but. Well, that's actually how, how I got into this business. I was working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness. Yes, and, and, and Christian Parenti and I were roommates at that time. That's why I keep bringing uh, him up. I think it's so cute. I'm waiting for one of you to spill some inside like gossip. <laughs> uh, and I was working on housing policy for, for the Homeless Coalition. And I had studied like economic development and community development stuff in college. And um, but it was around 1990 that we started to see this huge uptick in the criminalization of homeless folks. And I was asked to look into it and started thinking about it more. And it was clear that what happened was, is that the city of San Francisco had given up on the possibility that they were going to actually house people and just turn the problem over to the police to manage. So they used the cops to drive people out of public spaces, break up encampments, get rid of panhandlers in front of businesses, and that the, the, their ability to manage that problem through punitive policing allowed them to continue to ignore the housing crisis, essentially, especially for those at the very lowest end of the economy. And I, and I would just say, in addition, right, that that homelessness is about a mismatch between income and housing. And we had deterioration on both of those. Housing prices kept going up and the incomes kept going down at the bottom of the economy. And this was in part the result of these kind of global city economic development strategies, which involved subsidizing the already most successful parts of the economy in hopes that it would somehow magically trickle down to the rest of us, but instead it just distorted housing and labor markets. And this is the subject of City of Disorder, my previous book. And so, yeah, policing allows for these distorted housing markets. 
it allows for mass homelessness. Yeah, and I, I think that's why in New York City, and you know, Isaiah has been around this, you know, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo are so afraid of pissing off the cops, but they're really afraid of pissing off the real estate industry because that's really what yeah. we know here. Uh, and that that direct line connection really is this kind of um, you know secret villain that we're we're just sort of starting to put these dots together on. Well, I think, and I want to take it a step further, Peter and and Alex. I mean, I think we need to connect all of these things because you know, say we're talking about you know policing and the real estate industry. So there might be those out there who have secure housing and really don't have to worry about police officers dealing with them because they might be of a certain color or persuasion. So we need to seriously connect all these things of how you know unjust housing is a, a, a product of over-policing, which is a product of the military industrial complex funneling them weapons, which is a product of all these giant corporations buying politicians and how all of this stuff literally is interconnected by the thread of corporate money in our politics. If we remove that one thread of corporate money in our politics, and now it's no easy task to sever that thread because it's the golden thread that props up all these corporate politicians. But if we were to remove that, then elected officials would actually be elected officials and not politicians. And they would be beholden to the people who put them in office. For example, in my race, my opponent, Yvette Clark, has one of the most liberal voting records. But she sits on some very powerful committees, the Energy and Commerce Committee. She takes hundreds of thousands from natural gas and real estate. That's why we can't get the Green New Deal move. She takes money from big pharmaceuticals and, and big you know insurance companies. That's why Medicare for All single payer is dead on arrival. She takes money from real estate folks. That's why any AMI or any bill to deal with housing is dead on arrival. So just because folks have a D or R next to their name, that's not the problem. The problem is removing all this corporate money so we can actually start to deal with the root of the problem. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Isaiah, is there an issue that, do you have like a, not a pet issue that sounds so dismissive, but is there one issue in particular that really like, so like for Pete, it's a, a housing thing, not to reduce you to that either, but do you have a particular issue that, you know, really drives you? That's like the, the you know, the thing that like, you know, wakes this up might sound Katie, but it's all of them. So I'll give you it. So what about the, the, the trans kid of color who has a place to live? you know, but is worried about student loans and thinking about committing suicide because they, they can't even come out and be themselves. Or what about the person who is a disabled veteran who can't access resources? We can yeah. work too dumb at the same time. Right. I think that it's, it's we, shouldn't compartmentalize, we shouldn't compartmentalize our issues. Yeah. That's where we lose sight because then everybody gets pigeonholed and it's yeah. fighting for one thing. If we stand together in a collective voice and say, listen, all of this bullshit is wrong and we need to fix all of it. That way we get everybody on the boat because guess what? If I'm out here marching for black lives, if I'm not a black person, it really not might not matter to me. But there might be an issue that this person cares about. You know, the white suburbanite might really care about the opioid addiction and how, you know, pharmaceutical companies are flooding their neighborhood. So we can get them along our side too and we can all march together. You know what I mean? Because everybody yeah. sees Martin Luther King Jr. like it was for civil rights. It was from jobs. It was right. anti-imperialism. Yeah, exactly. It was against right. the imperialism in Vietnam. So I don't have one specific issue because there's, you know, if your house is on fire and the other person's house just got wrecked by a tornado, how do we decide which one is more right. important? 
Well, it's interesting what you just said, because I actually thought like, you know, the Black Lives Matter rally and then a white opioid issue. Like, I actually think that what's so like necessary is for people to not see these as as, this as a zero sum game. And so you don't just go to the rally for opioid overdoses for white people in, you know, I don't know, in like upstate New York or like you were saying, pigeonholed. The whole point is we want everyone going out for the all of the rallies. I mean, I know that sounds stupid, but like you know, the movement to be for all of these things, because these things are so interconnected. They um, really truly are. Yeah, and the, and the Dems are so, the corporate Dems are so good at turning them into niche markets. Listen, Martin Luther King Jr. said, we may have come here on different ships, yeah. but we're all in the same boat now. Yeah. And we don't have a choice, because guess what? Climate change doesn't give a damn your social economic status, your religious background is coming, whether we like it or yeah. not. Yeah, you may have some more time. It's because of everything with COVID as this, and I, I don't want to call it a, a dress rehearsal for, for climate disaster because it's a disaster in its own right. right. But, you know, clearly, and Isaiah has been there as well. Part of the reason that we're running against these sort of corporate democratic in the party is how inadequate the response has been to COVID, how inadequate, like our institutions are not prepared for something like this. Every other Western country has healthcare as a right, was able to kind of shut down economy and protect workers. These are not really difficult policies to put in. Most countries did this and ours basically fell apart. And clearly we've sort of given up any any kind of um, policies to try to shut down COVID at this point. So it's, you know, I'm glad you mentioned this, Isaiah, about climate disaster, because it really is, unfortunately, a dress rehearsal. And by all measures, we're coming up wanting here because we've got, you know, one party who basically is completely bad faith against any sort of institutional support or like governing competence. And then we have the Democratic Party that they're managers, really. And it, it's right. almost That's like the police that are sort of managing this stuff as opposed to fixing this stuff. And we are running out of time to do this. And if COVID is not a wake-up call, um, you know, and if the George Floyd uh, protests that have managed in this uprising is not a wake-up call, like, I'm very optimistic. I think, you know, Isaiah, we were actually talking about this, I think, last week about, like, what's the turnout going to be like during COVID? But I, I think with everybody, you know, voting with their feet kind of right now, I, I think there is this appreciation that we we do need action outside of the electoral politics, but we do need good people inside electoral politics. So I think there's a lot of reason to be at least some silver lining in all of this is that it's clearly broken. The people in there right now are not going to fix it. And we actually have an opportunity in 10 days to start uh, making some changes. Right. I have a question, actually, because I've been thinking about something and I'm wondering because, you know, it's clear that what's happening now on the streets is not just about policing. Right. Just like when we look back at the 1960s and, and the uprisings and the riot, we, while those were usually triggered by policing, they weren't just about policing, right? It was about a racial justice movement and deep inequality. And I wonder if the demonstrations are larger and more multiracial, ironically, because Sanders is out of the race. Because I don't think it's because the, Sanders is out of the race. I think well, let me just let me just say one more thing about this. Why I think this this could be a factor, which is just that the people don't see 
a, a way for their views to be acted on because the leadership of both parties is completely unwilling to take seriously anything they're saying. And so they feel they have no choice but to express it out on the streets. While when Sanders was in the race, at least there was the possibility of an electoral strategy for them. Uh, I, I see what you're saying. I see. Yeah. I, so it's not of, blaming Bernie. It's, uh, it's blaming the Democratic Party, really. I like I, your instincts, Isaiah, though. I'm the same. I'm like, wait, yeah. what are you saying about Amo Bernie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my take on it is, is that, like I said before, the, the moment demands so much more. And just how Republicans, their base is getting older and dying off and whiter. Corporate Democrats and do-nothing Democrats, this is the last vestige of this running, you know, uh, uber moderate like Joe Biden, who says no more, no Medicare for all. He doesn't want to defund the police. Like I said, the, the thing about knowledge and the thing about learning is once somebody gets it, once somebody's eyes are open, you can't take it away and you can't close those eyes. So these 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 young 17 and 18 year olds who are out marching right now, they're going to be thinking this for the next 30, 40 years, because either we're going to fix it in the government or they're going to be more and more radicalized because they can see their government is not meeting the needs. And like Pete said, out of the 33 industrialized countries in the world, 32 provide health care. 32 have a strong social safety net. The only one that does it is this one we're sitting in right now. That's why South Korea was able to shut down and Canada and all these other places because their social safety net was such that they could take care of the people. America just told us, here's $1,200, fix it yourself. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic of 2 million infected people in this country. Yet again, the defense budget is more and more and more. Yet again, the, the, the budget for the NYPD is $6 billion. Yet again, in New York State, we're cutting $400 million from hospitals. They're talking about laying off teachers. But there's always enough money for bombs and bullets, but never enough for books and backpacks. I refuse to believe that. I reject that notion. We have the money. We just need the political courage. We need people like Pete and myself and others out there who are running right now, not taking a dime of that corporate money, who have integrity, who will stand up and actually do this thing for the people because we are the people. Whether Before I got into this, I was struggling to pay my rent. I have student loans, you know what I mean? I have a wife who's a teacher with a pre-existing condition. I'm not some, you know, you know, well-groomed, pedigreed, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. I went to Brooklyn College. I went to Baruch. I'm just a normal, everyday person who stood up to say, you know Judy. what? Exactly. Yeah. My I mom went to City College and then taught LaGuardia. And that's what our, our corporate opponents don't understand is that this is not the, the end. This is literally the beginning. And they better buckle up. There's a war coming. There's yeah. a war coming? Your, your, your signal. Can you say that again? Because your thing clipped out right I then. Think I think they better buckle up because this is the world when coming. This is not, yeah. this is not, this is not the end. This is absolutely the beginning because unless they fix, I don't see any, any metric that they're going to fix anything. Things are only going to get worse. They're only going to get more exacerbated. And we haven't even begun to feel the effects of the coronavirus. That's right. going to come two years from now. And that's when we're really going to start to see the effects. And then then it's going to be it's going to be all hell breaking loose, honestly. I know. I mean, it's it's so brutal that, you know, back to your point, Alex, and I obviously, Isaiah, totally agree. Um, it's brutal because Bernie has been this voice of, of clarity in, in this moment for so long. And, you know, I, I was so excited about supporting him in 2016. I've been a huge fan of his going back when I was in grad school for urban planning, like studying community land trust up in Burlington when he was mayor in the 80s. Um, he has shifted the ground so much, and yet the the sort of 
awful irony of him dropping out during all of this is he's been utterly validated, right? Yeah. And, and I, I think it was such an yeah. indictment on the establishment that everything he has said and had he been in office in 2016, um, you know, we would have had a, a social safety net at least on its way that would have better managed something like this. Because again, like to Isaiah's point, like this, it's, it's failing, right? Like, and, and there are enough people that are doing okay, that it, it was sort of enough for the political establishment to kind of ignore it or to manage it and like, let the police kind of get these problems off the streets and away from people and tourists and real estate money. But COVID has, you know, obviously blown that off and we are still facing COVID. We're going to be doing this for a very long time, but yeah, it does come back to like, we do not have the infrastructure in place to protect ourselves from uh, climate disaster. And the fact that we keep having these massive problems. I mean, again, just in the last 20 years, we've had how many crashes and bailouts and the idea that somehow capitalism is going to fix these problems when they're obviously generating these problems. Um, it just validated Bernie so much. And obviously it's like, I'm so, I got to work on his housing plan. It was like a full circle for me. Like I, I'm running largely because of that, but it, it's so brutal that the right candidate actually was in the moment. And it was a, like, everything fell apart because a few, a few months up. different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Naomi Klein wrote that piece saying a few months different, he would have won it. And then Kianga uh, Yamada Taylor wrote that piece about how reality proved Bernie right. And I think the reason he dropped out was because he knew that they were going to keep pushing the, um, I think he dropped out because of uh, uh, the, he, he knew that Biden was going to keep pushing people to get out and vote um, in unsafe under unsafe conditions that to me when i saw like biden simone sanders no relation obviously to bernie sanders but tell people it was safe to vote because the cdc had said that the yeah. day after i couldn't believe this like that was one of those moments where i was like wow wait i really thought democrats were like better than republicans on this issue no, no listen i, I know i felt so naive all your viewers out there go to opensecrets.org it is yeah i know the I know the same companies will literally donate 1.5 to Democrats, 1.7 to Republicans. Right. They don't care who's in office. All they care is they have access to whoever's in office. I just didn't so, think they would actually say the CDC has said it's safe for folks for folks to vote now. And when I saw, I, mean, I wrote a piece about this, and I want to be really careful because I, I, the CDC had made the announcement on Sunday, and I want to make sure it was very conceivable that Simone Sanders didn't know that when she said. So, so just to catch everyone up, um, Simone Sanders said during the post, the last debate with Bernie and Joe Biden, um, that the CDC had said it was safe to vote in the primaries. And I didn't know. And I was because because Brianna Joy Gray, who worked for Sanders, tweeted out uh, a clip of this. And the clip just started with her saying that. And I, I was trying to find out whether what time the CDC had announced that gatherings of 50 plus people were not safe. And then I found the original clip and not only had they already said it, but Chris Cuomo said in his question to her, so the CDC says it's unsafe for gatherings of 50 more people. This means like every basically voting location out there. And she says, yeah, the CDC has said it's safe. So I don't know what Senator Sanders is talking about. And anyway, I, that blew my mind. I just couldn't believe it. Like I knew they were all paid by the same corporations and the corporate interests, but I really thought that maybe the Dems wouldn't like encourage people to go out and vote, but that was naive. 
And I, I had this conversation with my wife today, and I was I was talking to her. I was like, I think I'm just a different type of person. And she's like, What do you mean? And I was like, I don't think a lot of people have integrity. And for me, where I come from, integrity literally meant life or death. You know, I, I'm a, I have a military background. If I go to sleep and my buddy says, hey, I'm going to pull guard, I have to trust him with my literal life. And he has to do the same for me. He has to watch my back and my life, my future, everything is in his hands and vice versa. So when I tell somebody I'm not going to vote for this or take that type of money or do any of that type of things, I truly, truly mean that stuff. Like I would literally die for my word. That's, that's, and most people who run for office don't have that. There are a few Pete and other people who I know who I actually like and trust. But the thing that most of these, and I didn't learn this until I started running for office because I'll tell you a quick story. When I first started running for office, I hired a fundraising guy. He said, what type of money won't you take? And I laid out all the type of money I won't take. He's like, you're going to make this extremely hard for yourself. He told me there were some casino guys trying to open up a casino in Manhattan and they would be willing to, you know, donate if I was to, you know, back it. Or there would be some charter school folks. I'm like, no, I don't do that type of stuff. And he's like, all right, but you're going to make this extremely hard for yourself. And just the fact that he was so cash callous about it, like, I can get you the money if you want to take it. I just opened my eyes to what am I stepping into? Mm-hmm. Are these people, mm-hmm. do people really sell out their entire communities like that and just don't care? Like I could never do that. And you know, the other, the other really crappy thing about this, and like, this has been an education for me too. And Isaiah, we've talked about this, like it's also, and, and obviously Katie, you're a wonderful exception here having us on here, but there is this, there's, you know, the media can look at sort of some social media follower stuff. They can look at money and, if you don't have a certain threshold of money, like you don't, you don't get covered. And outside of some independent media, outside of just some sort of organic growth, like I think people have, like I, I worked on AOC's campaign, and I, I think some people on the left took the wrong lessons from that of saying like, oh, you can just like build up um, an army of people to help and, and small donors, and obviously Bernie Sanders showed some of that, but like what? what really set AOC apart was getting the massive amount of media coverage. There was just so much excitement around her candidacy. Same thing with Tiffany Caban's campaign a year later, that that's really hard as a scalable tactic for the left to do that. There are many great races, many great candidates like Isaiah and me out there. And like the, the media landscape, it's easier to kind of ignore or shape those narratives because we're not taking money and you're not really taken seriously as a challenger uh, by this sort of establishment, unless you do take a lot of money. And like, there just isn't, aren't that many avenues for people like us that don't want to take a certain amount of money. And, and it's a very vicious cycle. And it's, I mean, well, what does that say, education. What does that say when, when candidates are like, well, I've raised more money than you. So you, are you equating money? Of to course, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. So you're saying you can buy more votes than me from the people. Those candidates on our side are part of the problem. If you're choosing the lesser of two evils, all you're doing is emboldening lesser evils. The next person is just going to say, all right, I'll be the lesser of two evils. We need to break that cycle. Case in point, one of my challengers, I'll name him by name, Adam Buckadeco, like, I've raised more money than you. You're a failed candidate. I'm like, dude, that, that one sentence is a summation of the problem with our politics. Yeah, and yeah. He, he, he's, he's taking money from PBA lobbyists, from Oscar insurance, from charter school folks, from literally from the Langon family, the same people who started Home Depot. First of all, what do those opponents, what do those Republicans and those big money people see in your campaign that they would donate to you, number one? 
And number two, if all you think about is money equals votes, then you are part of the problem. And you don't understand that you're feeding into a system that's going to kill democracy altogether. You shouldn't have to raise $50,000. And I wouldn't care if there was 500 people running in my race. Democracy cannot exist in a vacuum. If you go back to the Greek city-state, it literally means demos, the people. You're supposed to take your message to the people and get them to vote for you. You're not supposed to have to raise four or $500,000 to run in a race. That is the wrong answer. And candidates who think like that are part of the problem, in my opinion. Let me just let me just jump in for a second yeah. here. I think I'm gonna I'm fading out, and I got an early yes. morning tomorrow. So it was really good to hear from you guys, Isaiah and Peter and Katie. Always so much fun chatting, and uh, let's let's chat again soon. Yes, Absolutely. yes. Thank you for coming. Yeah, great talk. Good night, guys, yeah. and good luck. Next and let's keep this DSA thing running like yeah. mad. And next let's time, see. let's talk uh, sex work, uh, decrim. Yeah, and let's bring some folks on who are yeah, working exactly, in that, yeah. set, that area. Okay, yeah. very good. Okay, All right. Uh, good night, everybody. Hi, yeah, good night. All right. Let's see. What, do we, what We've got a couple options here. Hold on. Let's see. Like that? No, no, no. I'm not going to center myself. I can center you. No, 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 no. That's good, right? That's good. That's good. There you go. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, tell us about where you guys are, the neighborhoods you're representing. So I, I'll, I'll go first. So my neighborhood has been the epicenter of a lot of stuff. First of all, Central Brooklyn is the epicenter of gentrification. We literally have, we're the epicenter of the COVID outbreak in Brooklyn, literally this district. And we're, we are the epicenter of the protests that started at the Barclays Center. Central Brooklyn is, is on the map. So my neighborhood includes Park Slope, you know, Crown Heights, parts of Brownsville, Sheepshead Bay, Midwood, Flatbush, East Flatbush, literally right in the center of Brooklyn. The community is a working class community, 50.5% African-American, a lot of folks from the Caribbean and South America and, and Haiti and Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, just a working class community. And for the last 14 years, we've been represented by, you know, a damn Fortune 500 billboard who's just collecting, collecting a paycheck from Congress and not doing anything because by every measurable metric, we're doing worse, not better. And she served under Democrats and Republicans, and we've still done worse. So, like I said, I'm running to represent the people in this community who are just like me, like you, like Pete, just everyday people, not rich, not fancy, people who just get up, go to work, want a better life for their children than they had and want a safe neighborhood to live in. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to see the, the problem in our political system, you got to look at these gerrymandered districts, uh, congressional districts in New York. They're they're pretty insane. New York 12 is certainly right up there. It's the east side of Manhattan from 96th Street all the way down to the Lower East Side, uh, North Brooklyn, all of Greenpoint, most of Williamsburg and Bushwick. And then in Queens, it's Long Island City and most of Astoria. Um, you know, the knock on New York 12 has always been it's one of the wealthiest districts in the country, which is true, but it's also one of the most unequal districts. I think it's second or third in terms of uh, economic inequality. Um, it's hard to find a district in New York City that has a majority white population, and they carved this district around for the current incumbent, Representative Maloney, who's been in office since 92. She's one of the wealthiest members of Congress. She's a landlord and real estate investor. Um, but New York 12, you know, regardless of sort of the, the stats about income, it's 72% home renters. It's one of the largest concentrations of renters in the country. And again, right now we've got somebody on the real estate side of things that are representing us. So this is certainly um, a district that has an immense amount of 
uh, gap between the everyday problems of folks um, struggling to pay their rent, struggling to afford childcare, struggling to afford um, you know equal paying jobs, and then the representation that we have from Representative Maloney. And I always say this again: I, I'm a housing organizer. I've been doing this stuff in this neighborhood for ten years. Any door that we knock on in New York 12, whether it's where I live in Stuyvesant Town in the East Village, whether it's Queensbridge, the largest NYCHA development uh, in the country, or the largest public housing development in the country, whether it's duplexes in Greenpoint, whether it's even high rises in the Upper East Side, people are struggling here. And, and I have a saying that I think really kind of nails like the reality here is that if you only make money when you're awake, you are working class. And there are a lot of people yeah, in New York like 12 that maybe have a good salary, maybe have a fancy job, you know, by some measures are, are doing pretty well, but then you look at the rent, you look at the cost of transportation, you look at childcare costs, student loans, healthcare costs, chips away, chips away, that people that I don't think necessarily would consider themselves to be working class, in fact, are. And that's a big lift of our campaign is trying to huh. expand that pool of folks that are saying, you've got more in common with the people in the streets right now protesting this and you've got at the boardrooms that are, you know, funding our, our representative right now. And we've had some success with that. It's difficult. Again, we, we don't necessarily have the, uh, the resources as, as some of the folks in the campaign, but that message is true. That's message is because I've been living here for 14 years, organizing around this district for 10 years. It's, it's easy to have these conversations about some really big structural changes because even again, if you're not necessarily housing insecure, as, as I said earlier, like you're, you're feeling the pinch and you're looking five years out and you're saying, how do I get ahead? Like I, I'm the, my great, my grandfather who I'm named after was an Irish immigrant, moved to Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, was a motorman on the New York city subways and had a very solid, like working class life built that, like bought a house, raised my mom and, and four other kids. That's like off the possibility right. for most people. And, and I think putting those things together to say New York used to be a good place to be poor, a good place to be working class with all the public resources. And that has been co-opted and privatized and gentrified. So it, it's a bigger message um, that we've been able to kind of get out to some of these communities. And, and you oh, know, we're, we're, we're not the liberal bastion that the rest of the country thinks. They see from the outside, they're like, oh, those New Yorkers, everybody's all, I was like, no, there's a lot of dirty politics in New York City, in New York State. There's a lot of people do not see, case in point, the, the absentee ballot. I don't know, you had, to, you had to fill out an application to get the application to fill out this damn 16-page story to send in to get mailed your ballot. When, now, after they tried to take Bernie Sanders off the ballot. Oh, my God. When, when the governor could have just said, you know what? Every registered voter, mail them a ballot. That's all he would have had to do. It would have literally took, taken 30 seconds. Every registered voter gets mail a ballot. But they make it increasingly hard to try to stymie progressive challengers and folks with, who dissent from you know the machine politics in New York. New York is not what people think it is. In our country as a whole, if you look at it in a microcosm, you might not think, but if you take a 30,000 foot view, because excuse me, when I was in the military, I've lived in other countries. I was stationed in Europe for four years. And <laughs> they're right. so safety net. They get money to go to school. They get free school. They get free health care. Every house has a solar panel. In Germany, they shut down seven of their nine nuclear reactors and have gone to green energy. I'm like, back, you remember back when Obama had the cap and trade stuff for the carbon emissions? America used to have to buy Germany's you know, uh, credits. 
because Germany did, had so little pollution, America would buy Germany's pollution credits to use to be able to pollute more. So if other European countries can get this done, it's not that hard for us to get this done. And we're all, all of us, you, me, Pete, we're all screaming the same thing. It's just those who are in power aren't listening. So it's time for the people who are screaming to get into power so we can do what we've actually been screaming about. Yeah. yeah I, I've often said, you know, as, as a democratic socialist and having worked in a lot of these DSA campaigns, you know, for, for my campaign, it's not about radicalizing people. It's about normalizing our positions because they are reasonable. It is infinitely reasonable to have health care and have education and child care costs and secure housing. These are entirely reasonable things. Many places in the world have them. We can easily afford to do that here. And we don't because it is a political choice and it's people making money off this stuff. Like it, it, it's a lift because there is a conditioned mentality of sort of capitalism and consumer and, and what's possible. Um, but again, COVID, all the protests we've had, the uprising that we're a part of right now, it's, there is that energy now to say like, yeah, actually we can't keep like muddling along. We can't just keep reelecting the same kind of middle managers here. Like th these are not crazy ideas. These are not hard to do. They just take some political courage. Um, and yeah, we got to go out and, and sell it to more of these people that maybe don't think of themselves as aligned, but they are. Um, and that's, that's a lot of work, but that's really crappy. You know, we were talking about this, Isaiah, like, you know, we were going to out hustle everybody. We we're going to knock on more doors, stand in front of more subways, go to more tenant meetings. And with COVID, we, we really couldn't do that. Um, and I think a lot of the grassroots campaigns that really do have this core message, it really are very validated by this stuff. I've been struggling to try to get that message out there. I so. mean, what, Pete, to, this shows that we were right. What happened, what's happening yeah. right now shows that, okay, so we weren't the kooks talking about this crazy off-brand message. We were actually right. So like, right. no matter how, what happens in this election, this yeah, is not the end. But yeah, so what? how do you, like, what is, it's so frustrating because as you said, like, okay, this proved that so many people are right. And now because of the various things, the people who are right, like, haven't been rewarded and maybe they will, but then maybe they won't be. So what's the next step? Like, we can't just give up and seed ground on this. Like, yeah. how do we... How do we like rub it in their faces that they fucked up without seeming like sadists? Really, because that's what I'm struggling with. I'm like, yeah, you, yeah. The only thing I've ever quit in my life was smoking, so I don't quit okay. anything. That's number one. Number two, once I don't know how once this COVID thing gets under under control and people can actually come out on the streets, you start organizing again. You start building those movements because we can't allow what has what has coalesced right now to turn disparate and go back to their corners. People have to stay almost angry. They have to stay engaged yeah. because we listen. NWA made a song called "The Police" back in the '80s. You know, people were getting bit by dogs and, and, and had water hoses yeah. thrown on them back in the '50s and '60s. So that's what happens. And then the civil rights movement came, and people are like, "Oh, well, we have stuff now." We went away. You know, the Rodney King thing happened. They burned down L.A. The cops were fired. Oh, you got a million dollars? We went away. Now we see. George Floyd, we can't allow this to separate and go away because if it does, it's going to keep happening again. We have to keep pushing for the ending police and defunding the police. We have to keep pushing for universal single-payer health care. We have to keep pushing to end this military-industrial complex because if we don't, they, look, look what happened to Occupy Wall Street. They literally occupied Wall Street, but they dissipated and right. Wall Street got richer and richer and richer and nothing happened. Nothing happened yeah. because they allowed themselves to, 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 to fade away. 
we can't allow that. So as an organizer, Pete, as an organizer, Katie, you as a, as a, as a media organizer, we have to keep pushing that message because George Floyd isn't the last innocent black man who's going to be killed. It just happened again in Atlanta. Somebody running away. It's going to yeah. happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and the, the next, the, the, the kid that died today because they couldn't afford cancer treatments isn't the last one. The person getting evicted in Crown Heights isn't the last one. So these things aren't going to go away unless we actually get people motivated and, and change the system that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, having gone through now three different rent law fights in New York City, in New York State over the last 10 years. 90% of all of that time was us losing to the real estate industry. And we did have a massive victory last year up in Albany. I got arrested with Jumani Williams and a bunch nice. of people outside Cuomo's Love office. Uh, it was fun. Um, <laughs> it's slow and it's, it's right. brutal. And I think there are people that recognize the hard work. They go to those long meetings. They go to the actions. They go to the local community boards, they do that work. And then not everybody has to do that. Some people just need to come and vote and or need to take part in whatever. So I, I think recognizing that there are different roles to play in this is a part of it as well. And how do you channel that enthusiasm? You know, Alex saying earlier with Bernie out of the race, was that energy kind of put out on the streets because of all the protests and the uprising? Clearly there's a lot of people that want the kind of change uh, that we're all talking about some of us like are going to get through in 10 days and, and win. And that's going to be a couple more people along the line here to get some more stuff done, but it's not one campaign or candidate. It's not one cycle. Right. And that's hard because it, you, you get excited, you get fired up. And I was at Occupy Wall Street and, you know, getting run around by cops and all that stuff. And then it was very disappointing that we weren't able to sort of leverage that into an electoral strategy but it's it's manifested in different ways and it's bubbled back up. Yeah. So it, it's a stop and start process. And I think that's the managing the expectations that we need to have. And Bernie was always so good at that of that dude's been doing this thing for 40 years. Like, uh, and I'm sure Isaiah, like 40, 40 years, years or 40? 40. 40 years. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, it's yeah. like brutal. Like, it just, I know he lost brutal. his first three races, right? He lost a bunch of times before he won yeah. his races. Yeah. So and it's incremental. I mean, it is. We we do live in a contentious democracy where you're not going to get 100% of everything, and you're going to have to fight. You're going to lose, and 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 there's so much fear mongering to get people to choose a certain side and a certain certain narrative. That's always been the case with police violence, but things are changing, and and I think that's where the organizers that have been doing the work for so long are able to capitalize on these moments where there are more people, there is more attention to say, here's the plan. Like defunding the police is not some like spontaneous protest no. sure, it's a detailed yeah. plan about changing resources and accountability like that's been done for years and years and years by people in a moment like this when history does show up there is the opportunity to say like and here's what we do now so right it's funny i have to say like i i occupy i went to occupy a few times it didn't particularly like i res respected it i supported it it didn't like have the visceral call to me the, the way that like Sanders campaign did. But I do think that these things do, like you guys were saying, like bubble up, like Occupy didn't, didn't, you know, manifest in a particular campaign or a candidate. But I think for people it made talking about class much more palatable. I certainly think that like, I mean, I don't know, I was going to ask you guys about this, but how much Sanders inspired you? Because I think the biggest thing about Sanders was that he just mainstreamed outrage. 
He like made it okay to be angry and made it okay to hope for more than the status quo and reminded people or, or showed people like it doesn't have to be this way. So if you're yeah. not angry, you're not paying attention. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You know I mean, and I don't know. So my apartment is one street over from where Bernie Sanders grew up. <laughs> I, yeah, literally in Brooklyn. I went to near DeFaro's, right? The pizza place, DeFaro's. Yeah. yeah. I went to a Brooklyn college where Bernie went. I was at right. his rally when he kicked off his yeah. campaign. And the fact, like Pete said, he's been talking about this for 40 years. Somebody who's had the same message, talking about the same things, and was right when he was talking about them in the 70s, and is right now today. Yeah. That that kind of level of commitment to being true to yourself and being willing to fight for somebody you don't know. That is what the military is supposedly about, is yeah. fighting for people you don't know. I raised my right hand. I have a lot of buddies who never made it home. I was willing to die for people in Oklahoma, Tennessee, that I never met, on supposedly on the idea of freedom. So just having Bernie Sanders be consistent and talk about this, never changing his positions, consistency, 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 talking about these same damn thing for the last 40 years, because the greatest tree you can ever plant is one whose shade you will never sit in. So somebody somewhere sacrificed for me, somebody in the 60s, in the 50s, when they marched, when they sat at those counters, when they rode those buses down south, they sacrificed for little Isaiah James, who wasn't even here yet. It's the reason why I, as a six foot eight black man, can do what I do now. So my sacrifice is for some little kid who doesn't even know me, who isn't even born yet, but will reap the benefits of me planting this seed now. And they will sit in the shade of the tree of equality and justice that grows 30, 40 years from now. That's what got me into this race. And that's why when I look at Bernie Sanders, I'm like, that's my dude. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I was studying in grad school and I got in because of tenant organizing and sort of alternative equity models for housing. And I got to go up to Burlington back in 2012. And when Bernie was mayor back in the 80s, he helped start this community land trust, which basically separates kind of the speculative nature of like the real estate, the land from the actual housing structure. Still the largest one in the country. It's like a deeply permanent, affordable housing model. And yeah, Bernie like got this together with a bunch of activists, got some funding for it, and it's it's been wildly successful. Again, like thirty five years ago. Uh, yeah. Honestly, though, like when he when he launched in twenty fifteen, he had his little like paper he came out of the Capitol. I, I saw that and I was like, good for Bernie. That's cool. Right. I'm gonna throw him some bucks like that'd be great. Yeah. Like come in and muck it up. And then like he just sparked something that I'll be totally honest. Like yeah, I was at Occupy. I've been doing lefty stuff for a long time, not in a million years that I really think there was that kind of latent demand for those ideas. And, you know, certainly when, when he came so close and, you know, again, talking to Isaiah earlier about like the voter suppression in New York city, allegedly blue state that kind of wiped him out. Um, that was really inspiring and it did feel like things had changed. And I, I again, like, I, I think for me more, it was even for AOC running and I was the housing advisor on the campaign, knocking on doors and stuff. And, seeing not just Bernie at that high level has been doing it for 40 years, but somebody in our generation, somebody from a wildly different experience and community and a different voice, like win. And, and that was really inspiring and saying like, Hey, there's room for us here. And maybe not all of us are going to get through, but like people can, like we that's, can win. That's, uh, that's their fear, Peter, because listen, before AOC won, who actually ran and, and won, they're like, Oh, she's just another person running. But now who just won, you know, uh, Paula Jean Swergen just won, you know, in Kentucky. So now what the corporate Democrats are seeing are like, oh, damn, 
these people are starting to win. Even if they win two or three at a time, every two years, you got to think these corporate Democrats have been in there for 20, 30 years. So if we win three and four at a time, in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, there'll be 40 or 50 of us in, right. in enough to actually move the needle and move the metric. So it's going to be a very big dichotomy when you have the Nancy Pelosi wing who's saying, yes, we should give corporations tax breaks and 50 Democrats saying, no, we should provide money for schools. And now they, these people on the corporate side are going to have to answer to wait, why are we giving the military industrial complex more money? Why aren't we giving schools more money? You know what I mean? So that's their fear. It's just like the Republicans in 08. When they saw what happened with Obama, they're like, oh, right. wow, all these black people and all these young people voted, voter ID laws. Right. They're doing that now. So they're like, you know what? That's why the DCCC blacklist came out. That's why all this other stuff came out because they're scared. Oh, that's yeah. right. We're blacklisted. I totally forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to contact the firm like the first month I was running. They're like, nope, we can't help you. You're running against the company. So I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. This that, this is so inspiring. I'm really glad that you guys could come on. And um, by the way, Paula Jean and uh, AOC, they both got the Katie Helper Show bump. So that's why oh. that's where you that's, you know, I'm the common denominator. I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, no, it's cool because it's like it's it's a, an exciting thing that there's so many candidates that are so exciting for leftists to support. You know, whatever happens, I, I do think that pe- I hope we, people remember that you know, it takes a while. So hey, wait, weren't all three of us at the Shahid thing in Queens? Yeah, they, yeah, we were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were all at the at, the, at Shahid's event. Yeah, okay. yeah. I had Shahid on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, cool dude. I love Shahid. Yeah, he's really great. Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. But and this last you'll see of either Pete or Isaiah. What did you say? What, sorry. What did you say? You'll see from either one of us. Either we win and get in there. Because I, I guarantee you, if I don't win, my opponent's not going to change in two years. She's right. Okay, so, so then what's next? What's next if it doesn't work? If it if uh if you guys don't win? If I don't win on June twenty third, June twenty fourth, I start getting my team together. Good. Uh, okay. I'm good. Get, like I said, she's not going to change. Right. She's of course. Yeah. Interrupted. Yeah. You know I mean? So she's not going to change. Girl interrupted. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I I you know I think too like with the census. Everybody fill out your census. Um, you know, they're going to be redistricting and, and what that's going to look like. New York's going to lose at least one district. So these things are going to get even bigger and weirder. Um, so there's a, you know, a lot up in the air about that. But yeah, I mean, it's what has been cool, even even for us as like leftists and, and sort of, you know, weird races. It's it's been inspiring to like recognize that there are a lot of awesome candidates out there that, we, yeah, we're not going anywhere, whether it's remounting in two years or doing something else or getting out of electoral politics, but getting back into organizing with a lot more um, people involved in this. It, it really is a very exciting time. And it just, the urgency of, of this kind of action happening is really what's sustaining. Like I'm on rent strike right now against my evil private equity firm, Blackstone. And like on June 24th, I'm still going to be on rent strike. People are still going to be struggling. So I'm going to take a week off and like go with my wife uh, and like get out of town and not text anybody or call anybody, but I'll get back and we'll get right back to it. That's the worst. Yeah, I'm still going to do organizing and stuff like that. There's still veterans who ha- don't have the services they need. There's still folks in my community. I see the same homeless people every year, which is a damn shame in New York City. So the work is not done. You know what I mean? So that's never going to happen. Like I said, the only thing I've ever quit was smoking. And yeah. thank you all for that. But Isaiah does not quit. I don't do that. Yeah. 
Well, great guys. Thank you again so much. Uh, any final points you want to make or, or websites you want to shout out or causes or anything? I, I'll go for, I'm not even going to shout out my website. Folks can know IsaiahForCongress.com. I will, but I want to give folks, we're talking about policing and stuff, four books, the Oxford history of prisons. And you can see they're all marked up. I read them yeah. all. Uh, the black silent majority, which is, you know, the Rockefeller drug laws, Michael's Foucault's discipline and punishment. And this one, you must read this one, Rise of the Warrior Cop. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I want to have a moment, yeah. While we're in the damn position yeah. right now. Yeah. Read those books and you will know. So just so you know, I'm not just, I'm not one of those ones who hopped on the. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, I have, a, I have a one more question for you guys. Maybe this is just an online thing, but there's been this really annoying left punching white liberal thing where they're like, oh, like. Like maybe that white anarchist should sit this one out. It's like a total like pseudo woke, but actually just totally invisibilizing all the people who are in this fight and protesting. I mean, I, all I saw on TV was like Louis Vuitton being looted and Nike. Right, and right. I don't give a damn about Louis Vuitton. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. Uh, you'll see my my Twitter following is. I'm not extremely online, so I miss out on some of these things. Yeah. But the the narrative of like who's out there looting and rioting and all this noise, like. I've been saying this for number one, like it's the responsibility of the police. The reason the yeah. protest exists because of police brutality. And yeah. like, they and were always letting this stuff happen because the old playbook was always like, let a couple stores get rocked right. by some teenagers and that'll make the white pearl crutching liberal like freak out about it. And that again, you, the difference between online coverage and sort of like cable news coverage is it's not as yawning as it has been. It's still right. kind of there, but that narrative is harder for that to stick. So I do think, yeah. That, that playbook doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Response to a man having his neck knelt on eight minutes and 46 seconds was, is, oh my God, they broke into that. Yeah, I know. If that is your response to whatever's going on, you're part of the problem. Right. Who you are. It right. should be, why are people out? Because people don't do this every day. Right, of course, yeah. But what are the conditions that led to this situation? It's the oppression of black and right. black people in this entire country. If we had dealt with that, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You keep black people in chains for 256 years, and then for another 100 years, we're not equal, and then maybe a store might get burnt down or two. Maybe let's deal with these damn underlying conditions, and we won't have to deal with that. Maybe it's the Russians, though. Have you heard that? Susan Rice told, <laughs> yeah. Susan Rice yeah, told right, Wolf Blitzer right. that it's Russian <laughs> sewing divide. Because Russians, they came here, they invented racism. I don't know you if know you know what? about that. That is just a cop-out for our own goddamn failings dealing with our system. When they say it's Russian trolls online stoking... Listen, I'm a black man. I've been stopped by the police for absolutely no reason. I've been assaulted by the police. Ain't no Russian have anything to do with that officer who slapped me in my face in front of my father. So that has to I don't give a damn. Nothing. The Russians had nothing to do when the police chased me and my brother because a white dude pointed at us and said we stole his wallet when I was 12 years old. Russians ain't had nothing to do with that. Before Russia even got the internet, dogs were biting black people on the ass in, in the rural South. Russians ain't have nothing to do with that. That's a cop-out for us not dealing with the underlying systematic racism that's in America. I know. It's so offensive. Like, I've heard this before, but I thought that now they would pause it. I couldn't believe that it kept like I, I, I like Susan Rice said it to, to Wolf Blitzer. I was like, really now? Like we just saw a man who was killed again, had a guy kneeling on him for eight minutes, and, and you're actually gonna pretend it's a foreign intervention. No, that's a cop out. Yeah, 
Anyway, well, thank you guys so much. And um, good luck with everything. Great oh. having you guys on. I really yeah, wish you luck. Katie. Really appreciate yeah. it. And thank you for all the work. Best to you and your wife. Thank you, Katie, for having me on. Thanks, guys. Come back. Yeah, see you guys. Yeah. Good luck, man. Bye. All right. Bye, everyone. Make sure you join the Patreon so you can hear my great interview with Nando Villa and Max Blumenthal. Peter Harrison is running in New York's 12th district. He's a housing activist, democratic socialist, CUNY adjunct. You can find him on Twitter at Pete Harrison NYC. Isaiah James is a democratic congressional candidate for New York's 9th district. He's a community organizer, activist, army veteran, and is 100% people powered. You can find Isaiah on Twitter at Isaiah for Congress. That's I-S-I-A-H number four, Congress. You can also find out more about them on their websites. Isaiah's is Isaiah for Congress. That's Isaiah F-O-R Congress. And you can find out more about Peter Harrison at PeterForNewYork.com. And their elections are June 23rd, so make sure you vote. Alex Vitale is professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College and a visiting professor at London South Bank University. He has spent the last 25 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. He also serves on the New York State Advisory Committee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Professor Vitali is the author of City of Disorder, How the Quality of Life Campaign Transformed New York Politics, and The End of Policing. His academic writings on policing have appeared in Policing and Society, Police Practice and Research Mobilization, and Contemporary Sociology. He is also a frequent essayist whose writings have appeared in The New York Times, The New York Daily News, The Nation, Vice News, Jacobin, and USA Today. You can find out more about him at Alex hyphen vitali.info also he has a new youtube series called the critical criminologist and you can follow him on twitter at a vitali that's a v i t a l e and to do that just go to patreon.com slash the katie helper show thanks again for listening bye